You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. After treatment with basal insulin for type 2 diabetes, what are the next options if A1C targets are not met? Joining us to discuss mealtime treatment options is Professor of Medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Matthew Riddle. Dr. Riddle, welcome to ReachMD. Glad to be here. Thanks, Matt. Good to have you on the show again. Let's just start off with uh, the concept of using basal insulin in addition to patients on oral agents. How effective is it? You know the literature quite well, and the co- this combination therapy, of course, was coined by you many years ago uh, as you introduced the topic. So um, we have the grandfather of combination therapy right on our show live. Well, as you know, it's uh, not a new concept. We've been doing this for some time. And uh, what I think uh, we can add to the original idea is that uh, time has proved that uh, this regimen is very robust. It can be used in a lot of settings, and a lot of different studies have all come to the same results. The basic idea is that when oral agent therapy is not doing the job, A1C remains too high. Uh, if the oral agents are continued and a small dose of basal insulin, usually taken at bedtime, is added, could be NPH or Glargine or Dedimer. They all work fine. Um, and then a stepwise titration over time based on fasting glucose uh, is used. Then the majority of patients can restore A1C to target levels, that is 7% or less, Uh the average in a lot of studies is about 7% after this procedure. And uh, in general, 50 to 60% of the whole population is brought into control this way. So 50 to 60% is a pretty darn good number. Uh, and does it matter what your baseline A1C is uh, in terms of the results? Well, it, it, uh, it makes intuitive sense, and it's true. Uh, we recently did a pooled analysis Um, of a lot of patients in different studies uh, done with this same general design. And uh, if the patients begin with an A1C below 8%, about 75% of them get to target. If they start higher, a lower percentage. But it's impressive to me that even for those who start above 9.5%, about one-third get to 7% after the systematic titration. That's pretty good, and it's even uh, those who don't uh, get to target um, can then think in a, in a very organized way about how to take the next step in treatment. Once you've got a patient well-adjusted on basal insulin, meaning that the fasting is really at goal, patients on oral agents, uh, what are the choices of the next step? We try to get people, if possible, to 100 milligrams per deciliter or less. But not everybody gets there, but a very high proportion can get to 120 milligrams per deciliter or less. And so the range that defines success, from my point of view, is the 100 to 120 milligram per deciliter range. Um, But of course, quite a few people uh, get their fasting glucose in this range and uh, showing effectiveness of the basal insulin, but their A1Cs are still above 7%. 
So here's where it gets harder. We don't have as much data with systematic uh, use of different regimens comparing them, comparative effectiveness trials, to show what's the best way. And the traditional way, of course, besides uh, doing the best additional counseling on diet and lifestyle uh, that we can, is to go to basal bolus treatment, that is uh, rapid-acting or regular insulin uh, given with meals, however, whether two or three meals uh, the patients eat each uh, each time a dose of insulin. But um, there are some new methods. So let's talk about the other options right now, uh, and I think we'll let the audience know when it's an off-label approach uh, or an on-label approach. Well, the simplest way to modify the traditional approach, uh, in my mind, is to not go directly from basal insulin with continued oral agents to basal insulin with a mealtime injection with each meal, but rather to do this stepwise, to take a single injection of mealtime insulin with what's judged to be the main meal, whether in, in most cases in the U.S. that would be the evening meal, but in other countries sometimes it's the midday meal. And some people like to have a big breakfast or a big uh, brunch in small meals the other times of day. So uh, a single injection with the main meal is a very good way to start and usually gains somewhere between 0.4 and 0.6 A1C um, reduction uh, with just that single approach. But there are other ways. <laughs> the um, uh, the ones that uh, we're probably going to be uh, studying most intensively in the next few years are the ones that are not currently approved, um, and these involve uh, injected uh, doses with meals of either a short-acting GLP-1 agonist or a short-acting amylin agonist, and uh, preliminary studies have been done with these. Um, and the results are pretty encouraging. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Matthew Riddle. We are discussing mealtime therapies for treatment of type 2 diabetes once basal insulin has been initiated and titrated correctly. We talk about the A1C less than 7% using insulin. A lot of our type 2 diabetes patients are older. Could you briefly comment on the results of the ACCORD trial, which showed, you know, a higher mortality in the more aggressively treated patients, at least the ones randomized to the lower A1C targets? Uh, the, the first thing that I personally learned was that when uh, we try very hard with expert uh, uh, providers uh, using all the tools we've got, uh, for these rather difficult to control patients, long duration, uh, high cardiovascular risk patients in Accord, we really were able to get awfully good control on average, uh, about 6.4% median A1C, and, and uh, quite a few, obviously, of our people were very, uh, very much better than that. We were below 6%. But it was hard work, and it turned out, as you know from the study analysis, that there was a higher mortality rate in the people who tried the intensive regimen. But Against uh, what you would think, uh, the people who had the higher risk with the intensive arm were not the ones who got all the way down to 6%. It was the ones who tried but couldn't get below 7%. So there's that very interesting finding that teaches us that there's something important about those people who try to improve control and don't succeed. They are higher risk, and we need to think about them differently. Well, what was the role of hypoglycemia in these patients that uh, passed away? Uh, I know that the thoughts have changed uh, with the sub-analysis. Well, Steve, you're, you're asking the very important, very hard questions that we don't know the answer to yet. But I thought you knew everything, Matt. 
Oh, well, we all have our opinions. Um, my opinion is that hypoglycemia remains the leading concern, but it hasn't been proven by our analyses to be the, the, the smoking gun yet. We don't really know for sure that it was hypoglycemia that caused the excess uh, fatalities. Um, it's still on the list, though. The other candidates are uh, weight gain, which was caused by the intensive regimen, um, or perhaps very high blood levels of injected insulin. That aside from what the uh, what aside from the hypoglycemia that may have been caused, um, but we really don't know the answer. What we do know is that there's a subset of vulnerable people who have high risk for cardiovascular disease or established cardiovascular disease, um, who have long duration of diabetes, and who when they start trying to get their A1C below 7, don't succeed. What about the addition of a GLP-1 agonist or an amylin analog? Because it seems to me, based on the studies I've read, and one of which you're the senior author, um, you know, there's some benefits there in terms of hypo and weight gain. And I know that they're both not indicated currently in patients with basal insulin, but they may be in the future. Could you give us some of your thoughts on that, on those two combinations? Well, the big picture is that uh, both of these uh, agents are involved in the same processes that normally control uh, blood sugars with meals. Insulin isn't the only hormone that goes up normally with meals. GLP-1 goes up and uh, the hormone amylin goes up. So what we're trying to do in these studies is to replicate other parts of the pathophysiology um, uh, of uh, diabetes, uh, replacing uh, a missing hormone. So that's the concept, and the hope is that uh, glucose can be controlled without weight gain um, and without hypoglycemia. And so far, um, that's the way the early studies are going. It looks as though this is possible for some patients. Matt, in closing, what kind of advice do you have for the doctors out there in the trenches seeing patients uh, until we come up with these new indications for the combination of these medications that we've been talking about and even the A1C uh, guidelines? Well, several thoughts. The, the first is that we really do need to have some revision of the guidelines, but the groups like the American Diabetes Association and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes who will be making these guidelines need more data before they can really um, have clear-cut ones uh, which will help us uh, solve the problems you, you pose. In the meanwhile, I think what every physician, every provider in practice needs to think about is that one size no longer fits all. We really can't be treating uh, people with type 2 diabetes all the same. There are going to be subgroups who are at higher risk for intensive treatment and some who are at lower risk. The higher risk people, uh, we have to accept higher A1C levels and not try to push below 7%. Um, and the ones who are at lower risk, who are easy to control, really should be kept below uh, 7% as uh, is presently recommended. So we have to look, about, look at subgroups. And the same thing applies to the treatments, and this is where the newer ones that we're still testing, the GLP-1 uh, analogs, for example, um, there's going to be subgroups of people for whom these are great treatments and other ones for whom they won't work very well. We need to identify who those are. We don't know who they are. Um, and so in practice, there's a certain amount of trying out the new drugs uh, when uh, there seems to be a, an indication for it in the given patient and uh, with the expectation that we don't yet know all the answers. So uh, standardized therapy up to a point, and then you have to individualize. 
I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Matthew Riddle. Dr. Riddle, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.